You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I was still getting over being dead. And let me tell you, that's a comeback. I died twice in the hospital after being stabbed, and the last thing I remember before I woke from death was Leonard being there, shoveling vanilla cookies into his face, waiting for me to wake up. Actually, I was awake, but I couldn't fully open my eyes other than just enough to see him. I repeatedly felt as if I were drifting away on a slow boat to nowhere with a stick up my weenie. That turned out to be a catheter, but it felt like a stick, a big one. Doctors and nurses saved me from the big, dark plunge, and I didn't thank Jesus when I came around. I thanked the medical staff, their years of schooling, their tremendous skills. I always figured if I was a doctor and I saved some person's life, and the first thing they said when they came around was, thank Jesus, I would have wanted to stick a pair of forceps up their ass and tell them to see if Jesus could yank those out of them. Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. You always have a, a a fabulous way with beginning the book. I'm thinking of the beginning of the drive-in, which is mm, yeah. one of my all-time favorites. Thank you, you just recently, uh, I was a few years ago when you get the whole annotated drive-in. Do you think you'll ever return to that world? I, I don't know. Once in a while, I've thought about doing a, a short story or two that related to other people in the drive-in. But I've also thought about an anthology in which I had a number of other writers talk about events inside you know, the first novel, because we don't see everything that's going on, but there are other things happening. So I thought, that might be cool. I could write a story, and then I could pick a handful of writers to do it. Wow, what fun. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? Now, uh, the matter at hand, Rusty Puppy, it's the latest uh, Happen Leonard novel. Correct. You've been uh, stirring those waters for about uh, 30 years now, I yeah, think. Yeah, at it? least. it was uh, The first one came out in 1990, I believe, and mm -hmm. it was written in 1989, which is why, like when they do the television series, they have it happen in 88, 89, because it was during that era that the books were forming, even though they first appeared in 1990. So they've, they've turned what I was writing that was contemporary at that time into now a historical. That's scary. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that having that historical distance gives it uh, a heft that that a contemporary mystery doesn't Agreed. have. I, I think there are people who write of their time and other people who write about their time. And you don't always know what's what because something can be really hip and just be the, at the very top of the reader's list at that era when it's written. And then 10 years later, it seems to have just been about, uh, you know, this and that of its time, a book produced you know, of its time, but not about its time. If you read Raymond Chandler, The Big Sleep, uh, you know, Farewell, My Lovely, all of his work, even though it took place in the past, and you read it now, and you, of course, feel the historical aspect of it, it seems that it has a current energy. And there are other writers that I read that I that I even I liked a whole lot, but if you pick them up now, and even though they are doing the same thing that Chandler did, they're displaying the era in which they exist, they they don't feel the same. They don't have that timeless quality. And that's a unique thing. And you never know if you're doing that yourself. You just write and hope. But I, I just think that, you know, we're talking about the 80s and, and stuff. I happen to think, yeah, historically, you never know. You never know. <laughs> well, I think, speaking of history, I think when you have inhabited characters as long as you've inhabited yeah. Happen Leonard and kept their world as close 
to our world as you yeah. have done with Happen Leonard. Right. You end up with a book like Rusty Puppy, which has a super contemporary uh, aspect to it. I, and I, I don't get the feeling that this is an issue book. This is not a book ripped from the no. headlines. It's a book ripped from your heart. That's exactly it- right. You, you pinned it. Um, because a lot of people ask me, did you do it just because of these events going on? I thought, no, not really, because these events went on before, mm-hmm. especially in uh, you know small towns and dark cities as well as uh, the North and the South. But the South had its own specific kind of racism. And I think that when I started writing it, I was digging into the past, but I was also... Uh, without really thinking about it, tapping into the contemporary events. Uh, let's uh, catch people up. The, right. These are uh, mysteries set in East Texas. Right. This is not. Uh, this is a separate part of Texas. Tell us about how Texas is divvied up. Yeah, they they call us as being behind the pine curtain, <laughs> and uh, there's a certain truth to that. But but East Texas is not like anybody envisions it that's never been there or hasn't lived in Texas. It's not dry. It's not, uh, you know, there are no buttes. There are no deserts. There are no mountains. It's a green wooded bottomland with lots of water and it's humid. It's a a tropical climate. It would be more akin to Louisiana or Arkansas or Tennessee in the way it looks, except it's not mountainous like parts of Arkansas and Tennessee. But it also has a different culture in that the Southwest collides with Southern. And uh, the old Southern uh, Gothic feel is in East Texas. We have alligators, snakes, that sort of thing. And one of the reasons when they filmed the TV series, they filmed it in Baton Rouge, was they couldn't get the tax credits in Texas, but Baton Rouge in that area looks a whole lot like East Texas. Uh, Probably a little more swampy, but not a lot of difference. The same kind of geography, the same kind of uh, animals, birds, and snakes, and all that. So in appearance, it's very, very different. And in culture, it's very, very different because you have a collision of white, black, and uh, uh, sort of Cajun culture. And now in more modern East Texas, you're beginning having more Hispanic and Asian culture as two overlapping and folding inside. So it's a unique place. Uh, living up to the American melting pot. Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> it is, and some some ways against their against their uh, intent, because it was a you know very racist area when I was growing up, and uh, uh, they had a thing where black people knew their place and women knew their place, and and gays better not even speak. And uh, people talk about nostalgia, like all oh, the good old days. Well, the good old days were pretty good if you were white and had money, and uh, but if you were black or any other. A race that was darker skinned or, or just different. Um, if you were gay, um, you, you know, uh, it, it, your life was not. The, and women, I mean, good grief, women were, were treated terribly, and they were they were in service to the man in any kind of way. Not not only sexually, but you know, they did the cooking and the cleaning, and and they they didn't argue. And people would talk once in a while. I have to correct my wife, meaning that they hit them. You know, Jeez. and and that was a that was a '50s '60s culture, not just in the South, but but of a more, uh, I, I guess, a nasty brand in my view in the South. But I saw all of that change, and it's there. But but there are still tentacles of the past that just won't let go. And is the future moves you know forward? Those tentacles just keep stretching. I keep thinking that they'll snap, but uh, they still exist. Though of course. Things are far better than they were in the 50s and 60s for minorities in general, everywhere here. It's the inverse of uh, 
William Gibson's old thought that the future has arrived is just not evenly distributed. The past has yeah. departed. It just hasn't all departed well, all the way. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, was it that <laughs> Faulkner said some some words to the effect the past is not de dead. It's not even the past. There's so a certain Faulkner truth to was that. inverting Gibson yeah. long before. Yeah, he was. The, he How was. interesting. And, and uh, Flannery O'Connor used to say, "I know weird when I see it," and uh, I think that's sort of the the difference. And, and the the South. Still, it has a, a, a deep well of tradition and uh, like water running under the surface. And some of that water is clean and clear and, and wonderful to taste. And some of it is just full of sewage. There's like two rivers that run together. And unfortunately, they sometimes run together before they can be clarified you know, cleaned up a little. Now, uh, Happ and Leonard grew up, I'm guessing, around the same time in the same way you did. So They did. So talk about Happ and Leonard's youth and your youth. We get a little uh, flash of Happ and Leonard's youth in this Right. Book. Well, you know, the, you do. In, in Rusty Puppy, you do. And you also get it in Blood and Lemonade in a greater degree because it's about the young Happ mm -hmm. and about the young Leonard and Happ's dad and mother and, and so on. But Hap, like me, was born in the 50s and went through the 60s and uh, that volatile time, you know, and then the early 70s, which were when the the, the, the sort of lovey-dovey, you know, hippy-dippy aspect of it had sort of begun to go south and, and uh, uh, drugs and despair and disappointment had begun to creep in and the, the war had changed everybody. The world, uh, not World War II, but the Vietnam War had begun to change people. And the old guard from the World War II who had saved the world were now dealing with their kids from the Vietnam War who didn't know what it was about. And it wasn't, you know, about anything in my view, uh, unfortunately, besides uh, commerce and, and, and the idea that anybody that embraced the word communism somehow had to be chased down and, and killed, no matter how many other people were killed, how much, you know, debris was left in their wake, you know. And, and it was a terrible war. And I was a, a Vietnam War resistor. I'd refused to go. I was drafted, allowed myself to be drafted. I thought I was going to prison. They told me I was. And I went home and I got my stuff in order. They had a bus that was in Dallas. You had to go there and catch it. And because, you know, that was for the military and the draft. And so I caught it back again. And uh, they actually gave me a one Y and sent me home which means unfit for military service. I, and I think that might have been a bone they threw me because it was near, the war was winding down, and I even had a guy at the uh, draft board, a, a, a guy, one of the Marines, say, go to Canada. And I said, no, I'm not running. I, I don't believe in that. I'm not, it's strictly speaking, a conscience objector in that I would have fought in World War II. I would have believed in that war with even uh, the, the problematic aspects of it. So I wouldn't do that either. So I thought I just decided I was going to prison. And I think that also they, I think they felt I meant what I said and that I was honorable. And, you know, uh, so that helped. So I didn't go. But Hap and Leonard, and Leonard's just the opposite. Uh, like my brother, he went to, to war and was, uh, you know, had some medals of war hero and so on, you know. So they're different but yet they both have a core of solid belief because they both watched The Lone Ranger 
It doesn't really, I don't really ever say that, but that, that, that is true. They believed wow. those things. And that's what changed me so much and hurt me so bad because I believe that with the Lone Ranger, that you did what was right because it was right, not because it was profitable or anything like that. And so I had these guys just sort of have my background and the background of people I knew during that era, and I've moved them forward, although I quit aging them as fast as me because there would like be eight years between books or four years between between books, so though I don't try to match that up in the novels about what time it is, I move them forward a little more gradually because I assumed they had adventures during the time I wasn't writing about them. <laughs> I always say Hap's better looking than me, but I'm smarter. <laughs> well, I, I'd have to say that you're both great writers, and I think that one of the things that we like about these books is your sense of humor. and. I can't imagine how it is you manage to make me laugh till I cry many times during any one of these novels. How do you uh, get a hold of this this kind of sense of smartass that really drives these books? That's East Texas. And I think, uh, especially old East Texas, when I was growing up, everybody was a smart ass. Everybody, that's how you kind of uh, defended yourself. And, and I think, too, that it, it grew out of a tradition of a certain amount of lack of, I guess, a lack of education where people wanted to be able to, like my father couldn't read or write, for example, but they wanted to be able to express themselves so they would find these powerful metaphors and similes and just smart remarks. And it, 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 it comes out of a, a Southern and Southwestern tradition like Mark Twain. Absolutely. I really enjoyed the way that you laid out the crime in this novel, and I think you do a good job of creating crimes that are both at, offer you uh, opportunities for humor, but also opportunities for real chills. There's a, an edge of uh, the horror genre in all of your crime yeah. fiction. I think that's true. You know, I, I grew up uh, loving the fantastic when I was a kid, and I still do. Uh, but the first things I read were comic books, and a lot of that was fantastic. And, of course, I was reading early on superheroes or, or Batman who in his own way is a superhero, even though he doesn't possess powers. And those people at that time in the 50s also formed who I was, like the Lone Ranger. They did things because they were right. They did things because they were good. They did things because they were positive. They, they, they tried to say, look, it doesn't matter who you are, the color of your skin, all this stuff. Now, you know, in the 40s, they were, they were certainly using all kinds of stereotypes. But in the 50s and the early 60s, there was this idea about change and about all of these fair play and then as I got older I saw that these things weren't really happening not in the same way that I wanted but that those elements of that plus the elements of horror that were in Batman from time to time and certainly in uh, the science fictional comics and and the and some of the weird comics that came along a little later affected my interest and led me to a horror fiction which led me to uh, you know putting that into the books along with a combination of majoring in anthropology and dropping out. But I got interested in how people think and how cultures work. And all of that begin to just kind of bleed together. So you have the horror, but you also have that, that cultural aspect. And the political aspect, I'm sure, had to do with the fact of me growing up to, to my manhood in the 60s and dealing with all of these hypocritical situations and uh, I think that it stayed with me forever. I know that I wanted to write a book about the 60s from the first time I, I thought about writing, and I didn't know how to do it. So when I started writing Savage Season, I thought instead of writing it about the era, I'll write about how it affected someone like me from that era. Uh, 
that's, that's a, a long way around it, but I... <laughs> no, that's a fascinating insight. And But this reminds me too, most people probably know you from your uh, Happen Leonard novels, yeah. but that's what, maybe a third of what yeah. your output? Probably, <laughs> so yeah. You are a busy guy. You I cannot am. stop yourself from writing. I walked I into this room, you were working on the next Happen Leonard novel. <laughs> yeah. I, I think last week I maybe you got at least one, maybe two ARCs of stuff coming out from Subterranean Press. That's right, I do. I do. Uh, there was, uh, let's see, there's uh, good Greek, but Coco uh, Butternut. Coco Butternut. On yeah, Happen and Leonard then it seems not long ago, Dead on the Bones came out, mm -hmm. and then uh, we have a new half. Uh, no, not excuse me. Pardon. We have a new Bubba Hotep prequel coming out, novel length. Uh, wow, that, that's Yay. really that's really weird. And uh, <laughs> and and that's that's one of those things when I just take a a flyer. It's like watching cartoons for me. It's like going off into this area where I can talk about stuff that's just fun, that's just crazy, that's just off the wall. The kind of stuff that was that in, I, I was influenced. From Ho Philip Jose Farmer and people like that. Who oh gosh, I remember reading. I those love stuff. Phil Farmer. <laughs> I love Jose Farmer. When you read that stuff, and I think there's an old saying. One of my favorite sayings is that the golden age of science fiction is 15. Yeah, I heard 13, but the <laughs> same 13? thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would. I and I have been told recently that I retain most of my personality has not moved much past that 13, <laughs> 15 year age range. Well, you know, it's funny. There are some of us and I, I, you know, you and I would be among that group who for some reason not only enjoyed popular culture, but were deeply affected by popular culture to such an extent that when we wake up in the morning, at least that little aspect of our brain is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And we have another part of it now that's more discerning perhaps and but but there's still that that feeling that that's what drives us and that's what pulls us forward because popular culture reveals far more about who we are than than uh, self-conscious literary uh, devices you know that there, there are schools of thought in in literary circles and in universities where it's creative writing is taught and, and keep in mind I've taught it so I, I I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone else but I think there's a difference in how popular fiction reflects who we are. A lot of it can be terrible, but there's still something there that touches the heart quicker than it touches, you know, uh, a, an exact fact. You know, unfortunately, that's starting to seep into our news. But, but, uh, but it's a different it's a different way of thinking. And when it's done right, and I don't mean the news, but when it's done right, it opens this place in your head that's full of curiosity and wonder. And in fact. When it's done right, it makes you more of a skeptic because you know more about how things are created and and how uh, ideas are pushed forward for all of us to you know embrace or not. And popular fiction helps you understand what true falsehood is, you know, <laughs> and 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 it reflects how we really feel. Uh, and I think too, there's such an element of joy, joy and, and happiness. You, you wed that joy that thrill of whenever I sit down with uh, Happen Leonard or Bubba Hotep or pretty much anybody I encounter on a page that's been printed with your words, I just know I'm going to have fun. Oh, good. And, and good. But also wedded to that fun is, as you said, the years of your experience being married, being living right. alive, 21st century. Raising children. Yeah, yeah. All that stuff comes through and it comes through, but it comes through with a bang. Yeah, <laughs> That's what's so. really fun. Yeah, you know, when I, I think when you do things tremendously self-conscious they, they don't work really well mm -hmm. but if you're tapped into your own life 
and you can express at least how you feel. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it literally. You can extrapolate from it. I mean, obviously, I haven't had the shootouts and the fistfights that Happ and Leonard have had, but there is at the bottom of who they are is either me or my own experience or the experiences of people I know. And I think that's what gives it that reality feeling, even when it's absurd. Your works are being adapted to the small screen right. and we're totally loving it. We feel that, I, I feel like cold in July onto the Happen Leonard series, a really nice progression. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on the other side of your writing career, you have the adaptation of, of Bubba Hotep. Will we see more adaptations of the goofy stuff? Well, I, I, I hope so. There, there is right now we're working on uh, Freezer Burn for a possible television show. Now, that, it still remains to be seen, but mm -hmm. there is actual interest. And uh, I have optioned uh, Sunset and Sawdust for a TV show, which is maybe not as, not as weird, more historical. But I also, The Pit is supposed to be filmed by David McKenzie, who did Hell in High Water. So we're going to see if that happens. Oh, uh, Peter Dinklage is supposed to do The Thicket. Um, there's a, a Edge of Dark Water is under option. And, you, you know, and I guess those are maybe some of those are more gothic or historical. But uh, there's Yay. also been <laughs> continuous interest in the drive-in and, and different work. So I think you will. And even the Zeppelin's West, there may, may be an, an animated possibility for that. We'll see. I, I think, too, I'm wondering, as a guy whose work is coming up and, and being seen in on the Sundance Channel, are you getting offers or requests to write other things? I I, I have had. I've, I've turned uh, I turned one down not long ago. I, I'm not going to say what it was, and it was a it was a good project. It was uh, um, based on a novel written by a British writer, and like I said, I'm not going to say because I don't know how it's going to end up. Who's going to do it? And I loved the material, but I just didn't have that same sensibility. And I just said, you know, this is terrific stuff, but I, I'm going to pass. Uh, I did write a, a script for the Happen Leonard series coming out uh, mm -hmm. this March 15th. It begins. I wrote the fifth episode. In fact, uh, my daughter appears in that episode uh, singing. And, and that uh, would be the Karen Lansdale we hear about in the Casey book? Lansdale. Casey, Casey yeah. Lansdale. Karen's my wife. <laughs> okay. But and then there's Keith, my son. But but um, uh, Casey has a like a 90 minute. I mean, excuse me, 90 seconds in that and she said it took three hours to do her hair so then she had 90 <laughs> seconds on film but she loved it you know she loved it and then my son just wrote a screenplay based on my story the projectionist which if all goes well i should direct this fall wow I'm, this is, sounds great and you uh co-wrote a novella with your son uh i wrote west my john i think was my brother i oh, wrote with brother. him and i wrote a novella with my daughter casey my son and I also have done some comics together, and he's doing graphic novels now. And my uh, my wife handles all of this and controls this all. You know, she kind of pushes the you know the hockey puck back into play when it goes out. You know, you know one of the things that's always fun in uh, genre fiction is name checking, and you don't do exactly do that's something you never exactly done. But there's somebody I have to call attention to right. your tribute to Anne Rice in this book is, I think, <laughs> it's, it's so hysterical and really fun. <laughs> so, so talk about just your, have you met Anne Rice? I, I don't remember having a tribute to her. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there's a, a 
400-year-old vampire. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. No, I that wasn't it was it was the idea that she had in her novel, but uh-huh. I certainly didn't think of it beyond <laughs> just the idea of it, but I thought Leonard would have thought of that, you know, that he might and I think Leonard he's a reader, but he probably would have saw the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and and and, uh, and I think that made him think. So yeah, I guess that is a tribute to her. That, that one of my favorite characters I ever uh, came up with was Reba. I I just love Reba. Um, she appears briefly in the next book, but very briefly. But I may bring her back in, her, you know, in other future pieces. But I, I, I just loved her because I actually know I've met that person, you know, uh, <laughs> that someone very much like just tickled the hell out of me, just saucy and and uh, you know opinionated and tough. Now, um, this book also. Uh, has such a nice uh, setting. You, you take us outside of Laborde, Texas. So, right. and you're kind of creating your own landscape here. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, are these based on places where you they live? They are. They are. The Laborde is kind of a combination of Nacogdoches, Gladewater a little bit, and uh, Tyler a little bit. So, I, it's, I've invented this city that's maybe not quite as big as Tyler, but bigger than Nacogdoches. But it has all these outlying areas like. Nacogdoches, Tyler, all these places do have. And um, Laborde is something I invented first in Cold in July. Because mm-hmm. that character, that main character there, lived in, in Laborde. And he, Laborde comes up in Hot in December, which is a novella I had. It came out a couple of years ago. Um, and so I've, I have kind of invented that town. And the Camp Rapture is another town that's based on uh, some of the sawmill towns around East Texas that have played out. Or, or puttered out, I guess, so to speak. But I sort of combined a number of them. So I see Camp Rapture as a smaller city, maybe 20,000, you know. It's got a newspaper that's struggling to survive, and it has a, a lot of corruption because in its own way, being small, sometimes corruption is easier to work because <laughs> there aren't as many checks and balances. And But they're all, they're, they're created. Marvel Creek is based very much on Gladewater, but none of them are meant to be absolutely literal. I bring in a lot of different ideas and events, but I also borrow certain events from uh, you know East Texas news and history and turn them into fiction. Well, I think that um, reading your books, uh, there's a, a couple of things that drive us forward. I, I could just read your books. You could just have a Happen Leonard sitting in uh, a novel that was Happen <laughs> Leonard sitting in the kitchen table for 300 pages, <laughs> sipping Thank beers, you. and I would read it. <laughs> Thank you. That said, I think you do a great job at revealing the mystery and making these mysteries realistic. Do, are, are the things you write about based on real crimes around yeah, you? Most of the time they are. I, you know, I, I would have to stop and think about each individual books, but I know Bad Chili, actually one of my wilder novels, has got uh, nearly everything in that is based on some real crime, and some of it is almost <laughs> literal. But, of course, you know, I, I took that sort of hyperbole and, and, uh, and let it go. I, <coughs> I'm also doing what I think of as Texas tall tales mixed with reality, mixed with social commentary, uh, you know, a lot of humor. Um, and, and to me, I always loved all of those things and I wanted to mix them together without it being like a fruit salad, but more like a blended drink, you know. <laughs> Something where you don't spot all the elements by holding it up to the light, but when you drink it, you get a lot of different kinds of taste. Well, I think uh, that makes perfect sense. And 
one of the genres that I think looms over your work and doesn't not get mentioned maybe as much as mm-hmm. others is, is the the Western. I, oh, yeah. And I remember, I think one of your earliest novels was The Magic Way. Yes, absolutely. It, it was. I think it was my first really good novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the Western. Uh, my, my father loved Western movies. And um, so he got me hooked on those. And then I, I, I got interested in Western history. And then Read, I read a few Western novels, uh, some, some I liked, some I didn't, but it wasn't until the 70s that I began to really get deep into Westerns. And, and, I, and I'm very fortunate as I read very fast normally without, you know, without having to speed read. I just normally read fast, a little slower as I've gotten older. So I just consume stacks and stacks of Westerns, I, the, the popular Westerns, the junk Westerns, the pulp Westerns, the great Westerns. I just read all of that stuff. And then my... Family, of course, came from some of them from uh, you know deeper southern areas, but others came through like Oklahoma. My grandmother came to Texas in a, a covered wagon. Really? And, and, yeah. yeah. She was born in the 1880s. She died in the 1980s. She was nearly a hundred. Uh, she saw Buffalo Bill's Wild West show when she was a, a young girl, uh, or one of its manifestations. You know, because he was also with Pawnee Bill and some other people, but. Um, she used to tell me about that, and, and to, for her, it was one of the greatest moments in her life. It was like it had happened yesterday, and uh, this was when Buffalo Bill was, you know, getting on up there, I guess, and toward the end of his uh, uh, show career. And uh, so she she would tell me about that, and she would tell me how they lived. And when I was growing up, you know, they still had an outdoor toilet. They they uh, did a lot of growing their own food. We did too. We grew our own food. We had the indoor toilet. Thank goodness. Uh, but I remember when they first built a, 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 an indoor bathroom. Uh, and I remember that the people got water from their wells. A lot of our neighbors still did that. They cranked that water up. I used to have a friend in school in Mount Enterprise, and I went to visit him a few times. And he had to get in the morning. He had actual chores he had to do. I mean, he had to go out and mess with the cows and et cetera. He had to bucket up the water every day and all that. Then we got to do that, go out and play. But... Uh, he would spend a couple hours, you know, on a weekend, on a Saturday, doing all these chores. And a lot of the people I grew up with were of that rural tradition that were either still on the fringe of that kind of living or they had lived that. My father's people were sharecroppers, and my father had done sharecropping. Uh, he'd had a tough life. He was a, a, an amazing person. You know, my mother, you know, uh, her people were not necessarily sharecroppers, but they were horse traders and farmers and, and things like that. So that all that Western atmosphere and all these stories about Billy the Kid and Jesse James, you know, some of them tall tales, some of them real, you know, pieces of uh, history, uh, just sort of fell inside of me. I, I we used to have a thing where we would go over and visit my grandmother on a Sunday, and we would set out under a, a big old tree in their yard. I think it was an oak, and we would sit out there, and the the old folks would tell stories. You know, and the kids were there, and we would sit and listen. And after a while, most of the kids would go off and chase fireflies, but I would stay there because I was just enraptured with not only the tales but the sounds of their voices. You know, my father had this really baritone voice. And he didn't talk that much, except he would get on the, uh, once in a while, get on these storytelling jags. And he was a, a magnificent storyteller. And I think I borrowed a lot of that 
from him. And my mother, my father, like I said, couldn't read or write. And he, he got older, got to where he could write his name and, and dope out the newspaper a little bit. But he was quite a bit older. But my mother was a ferocious reader. And so she pushed books on me and she loved writers and she was always, uh, you know, uh, telling me about writers. And I think all of that just was this, the perfect, for me, the perfect collision. You know, as a writer, you have had the pleasure that very few writers have to see your creations realized in movies yep. and on the television. Yep. I'm wondering, has that changed the way you write? Particularly for Happ and Leonard, uh, you now have actual actors out yeah. there who are doing a hell of a job, I have Oh, to yeah, say. they are. Uh, um, do you start thinking, do those people start to occupy your thoughts? No, uh, because Happ and Leonard are so well-formed in mm -hmm. my head, and I've been... You know, this Rusty Puppy's the 10th novel, and there's a couple of collections of short stories, and I, they've been with me a long time. But, you know, my work has also always been affected by the cinema as well. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a writer, and I, therefore I'm a reader, and, and books and short stories have been my main impact. But the cinema has always been there. It's always been a part of my uh, influence, as well as well have comics and radio and uh, uh, paintings and all sorts of things. So in the sense that cinema is already a part of me, that's it. But I think that it's part of what re, you know, reflects in the work that people say, oh, that's very cinematic or that would make a good film. Some of it, I think, sounds like it would make a good film until you begin to investigate, somewhat like Ray Bradbury, is that it sounds good in the head and becomes visual, but coming out of somebody's mouth, maybe not in some cases, or maybe some scenes are just so visual that actually they can't be captured because it's visualization as reflected by internalization. Somebody sees it and how you see it inside is is actually more magnificent, you know. That's the power of the reading experience. It is. But you know, like I said, I, I'm, I love film too and I'm excited about the, the film adaptations. James Purefoy and Michael K. Williams do a great job as Happ and Leonard and the new season, I've seen the first two episodes, they're terrific. I'm going out to Santa Fe for George Martin's little theater he has out there called the Jean Cocteau. And they're going to show uh, uh, the first episode of Happen Leonard. And, and uh, we'll, you know, do some record. Uh, um, I think we'll film that and talk about it a little bit there. Try Sound to push it. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, uh, as I was uh, reading this book, I was thinking that the your sense of America is really, really interesting. Um, you do a great job at um, bringing out um, America so well in this book. I I read this book and I think, what are Hap and Leonard thinking now? What are they <laughs> arguing about right now? And yeah. I just kind of makes my head explode. I, 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 how close are you going to hew to modern times? As you well, you know, I I've always tried to bring contemporary issues in without doing it consciously. Right. I mean, I know it's going to happen. It's like there, there's an old story, and I don't know if it's true, and it may be apocryphal, but it was told that Theodore Sturgeon, who was a great science fiction writer, as well as other things, but certainly one of our very greats, was it was talking to, to uh, the editor, Gold, H.L. Gold, and uh, he said, I, I want to say something about this McCarthyism going on. And I, I try to sit down, and I try to write, and nothing happens. And I I don't know how to approach it. And the editor said to him, he said, uh, well, Ted, uh, and this is you know what I remember. It really doesn't matter the exactness of it. But he said, why don't you write this story 
it opens like you know you're standing on the your character standing on the corner and a bus pulls up and a, a door comes open and a beautiful young woman comes down and she walks off and he absentmindedly begins to follow her and then he stopped there and he said so just go home and start it like that and and you'll you'll get it and Sturgeon said what (laughs) what but then he went home and he realized what he was getting at is that if something means something to you if if it's important to you if it's become ingrained in you that it will express itself in what you write if you allow yourself to be a conduit and that's what I do you know, and so I never take a lot of references to the immediate, although I do some, some pop, but I don't do too many because mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, date the book too much. Uh, but on the other hand, I think many of the things that are discussed are things that would have fit 20 years ago. And unfortunately, the bad things, it may fit 20 years from now. Let's see. There's a certain timelessness to crime fiction because, yeah. you know what, I, and if you're looking for a job that's going to be there, was there in the past and will be there in the future, Crime Writer is, is yeah, right up there. That's just right. lagging just behind Criminal and Cop. Well, it's, it's right. It's, it's like one of those things is that a lot of people don't realize that the one reason so fewer jobs are available is that the jobs they've been doing, and it's not really the politics that's killed them. It's not the Democrats or the Republicans. It's technology. Oh, technology is, is going at such a rate. I mean, eventually... With these cars, these self-driving cars, there goes the trucking industry, the taxi industry, and Uber drivers. <laughs> I mean, think about how many people are suddenly out of work. And people who want coal mining to come back, no matter what your view on that is, it's no longer an efficient form of energy. It's no longer, and I, of course, I, I don't like the pollutant aspect of it. But it, even if you don't care about that, technology has moved beyond that. If they opened a mine tomorrow and put people to work, it wouldn't last because technology has moved beyond that. Gas and oil are gradually being usurped by uh, solar power and wind. And, you know, and people say, well, yeah, that's still many, many years away. But that used to be, you could say that and you'd always be right. But now you can say that and you're not necessarily right. Everything's moving at a tremendous clip. Like my grandmother was so... I think impressed by the fact that she came to Texas in a covered wagon and saw him put men on the moon. Well, now change and technology and uh, scientific advancement happens so quickly every six months that we really don't always absorb it. We don't understand what's happening with artificial intelligence and, and how far it's going and how, how many jobs it's taking. And you wonder, what is the future? What Everybody has to be trained to work in this kind of technology, and the technology is beginning to take care of itself. So we're living in this Philip K. Dick novel right now. You know, we really are. I mean, I was reading uh, um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep again not long ago, and I was just reading some, you know, piece out of it, and I did the same thing with The Man in the High Castle. And I got to thinking, except for the flying cars and, and a few other little odds and ends, we're pretty much living in this world. We certainly are using credits, not money, you know, <laughs> things like that. It's amazing. It's really amazing. People say they're not, science fiction writers aren't very good at predicting the future. Well, I would beg to differ. I, I think that certainly Philip K. Dick, through a, his own philosophical views and whatever, was tapped into how advertising, and you go back to Frederick Pohl and, 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 uh, oh, yeah. uh, and Cyril Cornbluff for this too, the space merchants, but how advertising was changing how we perceive things, it first convinces us that we need things we don't really need or we want things we don't really want until it tells us that we need it. But it also begins to give us ideas of what's going on 
even if it's not necessarily true, that this is what's happening. And this is all advertising. All the news has become a form of entertainment, but it's also a form of advertising. It's, it's a form of convincing you of this or that to sell something, even if it's you know watching their particular channel or reading their particular you know newspaper, magazine, or whatever, whatever you have it. It's, it's, it's amazing really to be to realize that that world has crept up on us. You know, I remember when a microwave was amazing. I remember when a cell phone was amazing, but now the cell phone, I've got my office over there on my desk, you know, and every, everywhere I go, I just put it in my pocket. It's amazing. Well, I have more power in the laptop I brought with me today than I have had in the $65,000 server I uh, spent two months configuring right. 25 years ago. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I don't know if it's true, but they say that the cell phone is a far more complex and useful instrument than what NASA had when they sent people to the moon. The last frontier for things that we can buy or sell, when, we, when all food is, is easily produced, when we've right. got everything else, the last frontier that they'll be able to sell us and use is yes. our attention. Yes. And that's what, that's what uh, exactly. Tim, Tim Wu wrote a book called The Attention Merchants. Oh, wow, I need that. <laughs> yeah, and, and he, which is a history of advertising. And it's interesting because the invention of in, human attention as a product you could sell right. is recent. I mean, that was like about the 1880s, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it, that's true, but I think it really developed in the 1950s with the, the, the arrival of television. Mm. And uh, um, because suddenly you, somebody didn't have to come across it in the way they did before because people were watching television, they were watching entertaining shows. And between those shows, you had advertising, you were selling cigarettes and cars and, and, and beer or what, you know, whatever it was that you were selling. And if, if uh, you know, when uh, Christina Hendricks was in the first uh, season of Happen Leonard, and I, I liked her so much, she's such a good actress, but I had never seen Mad Men. And I said, well, you know, after, you know, having Christina on here and seeing how amazing she is, just, She's the A student, they called her and, and, uh, in the series, and she is. Mm -hmm. She was wonderful. I went and started watching Mad Men. I said, this is exactly it. This is the creation of the manipulation of how we buy, how we think, what we remember. I bet, I bet you, if you and I stopped, mm -hmm. either we could sit here and come up with all kinds of old jingles from, uh, <laughs> from, from advertising, uh, you know, because that's what you grew up with, you know? It's, it's scary how many of those uh, uh, yeah. rush around him. Well, you remember Plop, Plop, Fizz, Fizz, <laughs> oh, what a relief it is, <laughs> Alka-Seltzer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there were so many of those things. And, and, and I remember, I think it was Barry Manilow, wrote a lot of these lyrics and stuff, but, but he, he once did like a... a where he, I don't know if it was on TV or what, but he did this sort of thing where he just played the little jingles that he had written, and people were so excited as, as if it were, you know, Beethoven. <laughs> it's just so strange what we what we latch into, you know, and what we remember. And they're getting better and better at it because now they have machines that can do uh, th these algorithms. You know, they can figure out what we like, what we don't like. Well, uh, or so they think. Yeah. You were talking about Barry Manilow. I remember I spoke with Salman Rushdie, mm -hmm. and he started his career in advertising. He wrote one of the most memorable Breck Girl uh, commercials really? ever. Yes. Yeah. So that kind of literary talent, it pays off no matter well, where you it, exercise it. So, hey, right. there's always a career for you, well, advertising. Well, yeah. well, you know, Robert Block did, yeah. did that. Uh -huh. You know, he wrote advertising and uh -huh. stuff like that, or for radio, I think it right, was. Right, right, right. Uh, and... and uh, 
I think it was Robert Block. I want to, I want to be wrong about that. There was somebody. I th- I think there was somebody. It may have been. It may have been Block that you know didn't want to admit that he wrote advertising, so he told people he uh, played piano in a whorehouse. Uh, <laughs> but at least that's how I remembered. I could have my writers mixed up there. And, but but and, so many writers wrote you know advertising. Uh, I think Frederick Bull also yep. wrote advertising, and the Space Merchants actually oh. began as a. Uh, kitchen window epiphany novel that he was found profoundly uh, unsatisfying. He sat, he left it aside, decided to go into advertising, spent, I think, five years there. I was right. very happy. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 yeah. and advertising teaches you how to write in such a way to capture the attention of someone mm-hmm. immediately. Sure. And uh, and, and Paul and then Cyril Cornbluff, they, they got together and wrote, you know, The Space Merchants. And if you read it now, it's creepy too. It, it You just go, whoa. <laughs> Especially when you consider when it was written. But I believe that 50s was the golden age of the establishment of advertising and understanding how it really worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had it before. They were saying like the 1880s. And, you know, you had the, the Dickens had, the, he was selling newspapers when they would print his stories or his continued stories in newspapers. That sold the newspaper. Mm-hmm. It was a form of advertising, but it was not a direct appeal to you to do a certain thing. It was a byproduct. I'm going to read what Dickens said. Oh, by the way, I got the newspaper. I got all this other you know, information. and uh, But in the 50s, they begin to understand that this new tool of uh, advertising and selling you things that you didn't really need, where before they tried to sell you things you just needed. Mm-hmm. Now it's selling you. Not only do you, can you get your teeth brushed, but these are going to make your teeth whiter. They're going to make your breath uh, better. They're going to get you a date with this lovely woman or, or, or this uh, handsome gentleman, whatever, you know. I've been speaking with Joe Lansdale. His new book is Rusty Puppy. Thank you for joining me, Joe. Oh, I've loved it. (laughs) You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.